0: During the summer from this point on, those who of us who are preaching on Sunday mornings have been given the task of preaching from our favorite scripture passages. And so today I'm going to give you perhaps it's always hard for me to select the favorite, but one of my most favorite scripture passages. And before I ask Phil to read some of it, I want to give you a little bit of background. This comes from the book of Romans, which was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, who once was Saul, persecutor of the church, a a well-educated Pharisee, rabbinical teacher, um, who was part of the fanatical side of the Pharisaical law and was really out to pursue those who they believed to be um, in in, uh, contrast to what they believed to be God's law to be. And so they persecuted the Christians and and, and, uh, Saul was on his way to persecute Christians in Jerusalem when he was converted on the Damascus Road. Um, by Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus appeared to him. Uh, he was literally knocked off of his uh, donkey or horse, whatever he was riding, and, and had an experience of a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And his whole life and orientation was changed. And It's indicated in Acts 9 by the fact that he starts as Saul, and because of that, becomes because of the con- conversion becomes Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, because most of the New Testament, after all, are letters to the churches that Paul road to try to give encouragement or correction um, and to try to give them a teaching. Romans is one of his last writings, perhaps his last writing that we have in the New Testament. And if you think about it this way, it is as if someone who's been working for a long time in the ministry of the gospel knows they've got a little bit of time left, so they want to just lay out for all of you now what he believes. And so Romans is basically a theological book. Uh, it's a book which tries to lay out how he understands what God was doing throughout history. In chapter 8, which is chapter 8 and chapter 12 are my favorite passages of Romans, he moves from theological reflection to get down to the nitty-gritty of faith. And in the section that Phil's going to read to you, there are a couple passages that always throw people. And I just want you to be aware of it before we get there. The first of which, let me just share it with you. You're going to hear it again. And if you want to open up your Bibles to Romans 8, it won't hurt you probably. Um, Might help. Um, You never know. Um, in verse uh, 28 of chapter 8, says, We know all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You've probably heard that, right? God works for good for all, in all things. Which sometimes people have taken to believe that no matter what happens, God's all about it. God's for it. And God's going to make something of it. So therefore, it was God's intention. I want to be clear with you. That's not what Paul is saying. I want you to be clear. That this is where I say to you once again as your pastor do not proof text scripture if someone says to you well i know what it says because in verse so and so it says then ask them the follow-up question what does the whole of scripture say because i can proof text you out of your house i can proof text you to believe you ought to own slaves i can proof text you into anything if you love me just take out passages of scripture In paul i mean in romans paul is not saying that god is the author of everything so even tragedies god is all excited about it because now he can do something good That's not what he's saying. The other thing says here in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined. Oh, any good Presbyterians in the room. In some translations, it's called the elect. Well, here's the deal. Remember this. The Apostle Paul began as a fanatical Jew who believed that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even after he was converted, was first to be given to the Jewish community, his own people. But then he was led to believe and act to understand that the gospel was to be embraced by all people, even Gentiles who live in Clarkston. All people. So Paul is not saying here that God just has a few people or select people or people who look like Rick Dake who get into heaven. What he's really saying is, is I think you're going to hear in the concluding words of Romans 8, you all are elected.
1: Phil, give us the word. Okay. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for the, for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what is not seen, we will wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Jesus Christ who died, yes, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written... From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Word of God for the people of God.
0: Be to God. Would you pray with me? great and loving God, we give you thanks for these more than good words, these words of life. Allow them to be infused by the power of your Holy Spirit that they would breathe life into us today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Friday night, we were driving back from Clintonville Park from the fireworks. Uh, In the car were Laura, Our daughter, Emily, and her two children, two of our grandchildren, Leah and Jasper. It was the grandchildren's first time to see fireworks because the July 4th holiday is not a big deal in Switzerland where they live. So I don't know if it was the inspiration of the fireworks or the imaginative wondering of a five-year-old mind that caused Leah on that dark ride home, short that it was, to begin to ask God questions. Not questions to God, questions about God to those of us in the car. Questions like, is God as big as a giant? How did God create everything? Now, this was not her first endeavor as a budding theologian. Earlier in the week, as we sat downstairs watching the movie Frozen, and I don't want to be a plot spoiler, but in the middle of the movie, the king and queen are killed. At the moment of that tragedy, uh, Leah's cousin, Elena, who was sitting on the couch next to her, said very simply, and matter of factly, my Gigi died, Laura's mom, a month ago. To which Leah decided to give immediate theological comfort and leaned down to her like this and said, It's okay, Leah. We'll see her one day in heaven. Which then began what will forever be known as the death dialogue inspired by Frozen and given by Leah and Elena on the couch in the basement. As they debated a theological understanding of what all that meant, I said, watch the movie. (laughs) Well, we're driving on the other night, and, and Lena starts asking these questions, and I could feel my daughter Emily's joy from the back of the car in the dark, imagining a smile on her face as she said simply to Leah, Ask Poppy. <laughs> and after several question and answers from my seat to Leah, this question, statement, wonderment came from her. Poppy do you know a lot about God? I paused. And I thought about, do you lie to your granddaughter at this age? And I said, truthfully, Leah, there's more about God that I don't know than I do know. God is so much bigger and different than us. That I can only know a little bit, but there are some things of which I know well. As at that moment, I realized, of course, I've been preparing for this sermon for a while. The Apostle Paul must have known a five-year-old. The Apostle Paul must have known a five-year-old who came into his study, I assume, one day, as Paul is writing there with his shaky hands and limited eyesight, writing a letter to the Church of Rome, a theological treatise that was deep and weighty and sometimes helpful and sometimes confusing for us still today. It must have been around chapter 7, I'm guessing, that the five-year-old came in and said, "'So, Poppy Paul, what do you know about God?' And as he finished 7 and began 8, he moved from being a theologian to be a man of faith who just got down to the core of what he believed, which is why I love this section of chapter 8. It comes down very simply to this in 38 and 39. For I'm convinced... That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because that's what it came down to for Paul. After he spent all this dialogue around trying to contrast faith and law and trying to understand how the law was helpful for a point, but then eventually the grace of God needed to be revealed in this person we know as Jesus Christ. After he gave, gave all of this dialogue and argument and theological reflection in the first part of the book, in Romans 8 he paused to say, you know what, after all that, here's what really matters. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. How did he know it? Because he had experienced it. Because his own life taught him that it was true. Even when he was not only running from God, but running to kill the followers of God as they believed him to be in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ could not be separated from him. When he laid on his back, stunned, confused, and blinded by a conversion experience, Jesus Christ could not be separated from him. When he was converted and now had to turn around and go as a new convert to those he was threatening to kill and say to them, Jesus has claimed even me, Jesus was not separated from him. When Paul continued in his ministry to go and preach to the Jews, his own people, people who knew him from when he was little, little Solly, and they rejected him. Jesus was not separated from him. When he traveled and was beaten and flogged and arrested and betrayed by even some of his own followers, Jesus was not taken from him. Could not be separated from Christ in all of his experiences. And now as he faces his final journey, which will likely end and in his own death and martyrdom for Jesus Christ, he knew this simple truth. After all is said and done, I cannot be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. That's more than just comfort. It is a fact that says that then determines how I live every day. I will say what I need to say. I will live how I need to live according to the purpose of Jesus Christ. Because really whatever the world does to me cannot separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. The only thing that can shut it out for a while is our own determination not to accept it. Not to be a part of it. But if I'm willing to live into it. There's nothing... That can not only separate me, but that I cannot experience in the middle of all things. He knew it. Why is this my favorite passage? Because after 58 years of reflection, after being involved in the lives of literally thousands of people, in all manner of circumstances, I've come to believe this. We are a screwed up lot. <laughs> we make a lot of mistakes. And some of us live our lives screwed up because we think we're not screwed up. We think we're blessed. We think we've got it all together and it's those other people over there who are screwed up. That's really being screwed up. in the midst of all my experiences in my life, my failings, my weaknesses, my sin, and in all the experiences of the lives I've known, I've come to know this one thing to be true. Even in the midst of the house that I've lived, I could not be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. I might not be aware of it at times, but I was never separated from it. Neither are the people I've loved or cared for and ministered to. Neither are the people that I've hated or thought were my enemies. Neither are any of you. You could not be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. My most recent experience: Kelsey went with me this past week to visit someone that I've gotten to like an awful lot. Her name is Ella. Ella wears a beautiful pink princess dress. She was born on September 30th. She weighed 14 ounces. Her mother was seriously ill. The birth was, as you can understand, well premature. The lungs were never formed right. And she's never left the hospital. She's at Children's today. And I went down several weeks ago to be introduced to Ella and to Sherry and Alan, her parents, who have been basically living at Children's Hospital and Beaumont Hospital back and forth since September. Alan tries to hold on to his construction job and spend as much time at the hospital as possible. Sherry is just at the hospital. One of the things I did after a couple of visits and being with them was find that Alan was asking for this simple thing. He wanted to be baptized. You see, his wife, Sherry, had been baptized as a young child and And Ella had been baptized several months ago on one of those nights. They they weren't sure if she was going to make it to the morning. The chaplain came in and baptized her. Alan wasn't baptized. And he wanted to be baptized like the rest of his family. But he didn't want to do it in the sanctuary. He wanted to do it next to Ella. So I went to Children's Hospital and I baptized Alan as we leaned over Ella's bed. And some of the baptismal water, I watched, dripped off his head and onto Ella. Sherry took some pictures, which are on my phone today. She took them and sent them to me. She said, I'm sorry, you said send a picture. I sent nine because you know how mothers are with their daughters. (laughs) They take a lot of pictures. She also wanted me to show Ella's picture to as many people as possible because they wanted as many people as possible to be praying for Ella. I said I thought I knew some people who would do that, don't I? So Ella Cahoon is in Children's Hospital and I don't know what tomorrow brings but I know this, nothing today can separate them from the love of Jesus Christ. And the thing that gets them from one day to the next is a very simple truth. God's power is greater than their weakness greater than their fatigue, greater than the odds that they face. Is God glad that Elle is sick? No. Is God faithful to stand next to the bed and in the arms and in the hearts of those who tend to her and care for her every minute of every second of every day from now through eternity. For there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. The next service, Matt and Elizabeth Wolber are going to bring Caroline Wolber up and we're going to baptize her. We're going to dunk her in the tank, as I love to say. We're going to get her all wet. And every baptism is special and every baptism is important. It doesn't matter a hoot to me that she's my granddaughter. Matt is a great hoot to me, quite frankly. And as they bring her, we will all bring her and we will put her in baptismal waters. Why? Because she's not loved by God and we've got to wash her up so she gets out of hell in case something happens? No. One of the things I'm more convinced about than anything in my life is, is that children, all children, know more about the grace of God than I've forgotten or will ever know. And God is with them. We put her in the baptismal waters because we want to begin intentionally the setup. We want every moment for the rest of her life, for Caroline to understand that she is already washed in the love of Christ. God's grace is upon her and we want to take covenant vows around her so that she will intentionally grow to know this love of Jesus Christ and one day accept it for herself. It's why we baptize every child can get our hands on it. And ask every set of parents and family and congregation to make their pledge and covenant to say we will do everything we can to make sure she, they, he, all of them know about Jesus Christ. So today we baptize her here because, well, Poppy gets to do it. And we do it alongside the Haymount United Methodist Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where they're members. And we do it with all of the church universal and all Jesus followers around the world, just as they're baptizing children today. And in many ways, we're making covenant with them. Can she earn God's love? No. Can't you do something so foul, so heinous, so ridiculous, that she can abandon and ignore and destroy God's love? No. My simple analogy is this, God's love is like the ocean. It was here before you ever showed up. And it'll be here long after you're gone. And that's just the truth and you can't change it. The only thing you get to decide when you log next to the ocean is whether you want to get in it and actually get wet. Romans 8 is one of my favorite passages of all time because I do believe that there's nothing in this world that can separate from the love of Jesus Christ. The question though is, having said that, what will we do about it? It's not whether God loves you, that's given, we already know that to be true. It's not whether you or I or anyone is worthy of it on our own, we know that's not true. It's clearly a gift that we have received. And during and after all the events in our life, the question of our worthiness is no longer the question. The question is, if we are people who really believe that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, then what will we do tomorrow for that reason? Are you willing to accept the love of Christ to allow it to break through your grief and fears today, the ones that capture you, the ones that contain you, the ones that hold you back? Are you willing to be convinced of the love of Jesus Christ to not only prepare you for the days of suffering that will occur in your life and in the lives of your families, but to be the kind of love in your life that will lead you and to go to people who are suffering and walk with them in their days of darkness? Are you willing to live confident because of the love of Jesus today that you will see the glory of God revealed today? The sufferings of this present day are not to be compared to the glory about to be revealed to us is not about the fact that we get through this life and get to heaven. It is about the fact the suffering of this day cannot be compared to the glory that Jesus wants to give to us this day. Which is why parents of children in children's hospital can find joy and laughter in the midst of a moment that we don't want to be present to because they've discovered glory even in the midst of suffering for Christ is present even in ways we cannot fully understand. For I'm convinced that nothing in life or death, nothing in hate or defeat, nothing in addiction or grief, nothing in loss of job or loss of family or loss of standing, nothing in illness or depression or brokenness of spirit or body, nothing in the fragmented parts of the world in which we live, nothing in your life and nothing in my life will ever be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And so to Leah and to you I say, of this I am convinced. And I invite you, if you're convinced, to join with me in the sacrament of communion which is our sign and symbol of sealing the deal, of just how far Christ is willing to go with us. Amen.